What's up Novocastrians? Welcome to another killer episode of No Local, where Henderson Advocacy uncovers the truth behind the businesses you know and love. From the beaches of Nobbies all the way down to Redhead and everywhere in between, we are your local area experts. Connecting with the faces behind the brands, it is our aim to bring together the local business community and find out what it is about these businesses uh, in Newcastle that make that makes them thrive. Today, our guest is none other than Mike Mortlock, head, heading up uh, MCG Quantity Surveyors here in Charlestown. They've got presences uh, on a national front in Brisbane, Melbourne, uh, in Sydney, and other places in Australia. And he's also a very, very keen or, or amateur triathlete, so I hear, and, and we'll dig into that a little bit later uh, in the episode. So, Mike, welcome to No Local. Thanks for having me. This should be fun. <laughs> Uncovering the truth. I don't know if we're between knobbies and redhead technically, but you know, close enough. That's it. We're a little <laughs> bit far out. We're, we're sitting in, uh, in your offices in Charlestown today, and mate, you've got an incredible view behind you. Um, yeah, McDonald's car park. It's uh, one of the best. Welcome to come visit if that's uh, your jam. It's not too bad. It would be nice if we're facing the other way because you can actually see the ocean from downstairs, the front steps. But um, yeah, I don't know, a bit of Mount Sugarloaf something. <laughs> that's iconic Newcastle, isn't it, Sugarloaf? <laughs> Helps you get through those uh, tax depreciation schedules throughout the day. It does. So, mate, where, uh, where does your story in Newcastle all start? Yeah, well, the first place that I lived in Newcastle was Caves Beach. Um, so I moved to Newcastle in about 97. I think I was about 16 or something like that at the time. Um, so, yeah, from Caves Beach, I went to Swansea High School. Um, that doesn't sort of open a lot of doors, to be honest, but uh, I had fun. Uh, and then, yeah, moved around to a few different places. I've lived in Belmont, Swansea, Marks Point, um, Waratah, and, uh, yeah, now I'm on the lake. So, yeah, I've done a, done a bit of hopping around Newcastle. Yeah, for sure. And, and what was it about those lakeside suburbs that, I guess, keeps you coming back? Yeah, well, I mean, I love the water. I reflect to myself, like, um, I, I wouldn't, I would hate to move away from the water, but then when I really admit it, I very rarely am in it, right? Mm-hmm. It's just one of those things. People like to be, like, they like to have the idea that I could go to the beach tomorrow. I don't think I've been in the beach for a good year and a half, <laughs> but the idea of not being able to do that this afternoon if I wanted is just unbearable. So I don't know. I've always liked the water. I grew up in the country. There's not a tremendous amount of that, and if there is, it's sort of fresh and there's leeches in it. Here it's a bit more fun. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the, the beaches in Newcastle, they're, they're second to none. I've actually been, you know, elsewhere in the world and, you know, you, you go to these countries and they say, you've got to go to this beautiful beach we've got. Uh, you know, you get there and it's pebbles. And uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. so, yeah, so let's fast forward then to, I guess, the start of MCG Quantity Surveyors. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know what, before we actually start speaking about the business itself, why don't you tell us a little bit about what the business does and, and what a tax depreciation schedule is? Yeah, sure. Uh, so we're quantity surveyors, so we're construction cost estimators. We're the best people to say what something costs to build. So there's a few different services that we do. We work for banks and developers and financiers doing progress claims, doing insurance work and that sort of stuff. 
Tax depreciation is one sort of whole side of the business and that's my specialty. Uh, and essentially a tax depreciation schedule is a bit like a valuation. So you know how a valuer would go to a property and tell you the value of it. That's a market value. We're looking at the depreciable value. So the value of all the qualifying plant and equipment items and structural components. And that report just shows the property investor what they can get back as a tax deduction each financial year. So we do that across residential houses, units, we do commercial, industrial, hotels, wineries, all sorts of different things. Yeah, right. Okay. So how would you describe, I guess, you know, of all of those different sectors that um, you're performing this work for, mm. how big of uh, of the portfolio would be residential real estate, for instance, and, yep. then, and then your other, say, um, commercial and the like? Yeah, for on the tax side of things, you'd, you'd probably think it's about 85 to 90% resi. Um, there's just... There's just a lot more residential property in Australia and there's a lot more residential transactions happening for investors than commercial. Commercial can be under a 1,000 transactions a year. Uh, and I think once you get to a point, these organisations have CFOs that generally chuck 2.5% Division 43 rate on it, you know, with your accounting background. Um, and they're probably really under-utilising depreciation. Um, but, yeah, that's one of the things that we try and educate people on. But, yeah, there's much more resi than there is commercial out there. Yeah, sure. There's – what would you say – so if I was, say, an investor and I was looking to um, either try and work out my depreciation myself or, or let my accountant deal with it – What's some of the, the biggest areas that um, you see, you know, when you're performing these reports that residential real estate investors are missing out on yeah. if they're not getting these types of reports? Yeah, look, the, the biggest one is just not doing it at all. I mean, getting your accountant to do it or assessing it yourself, I mean, technically there are self-assessment rules, but... Our job is to maximise the deductions for the client. So, of course, we're not looking at conservative estimates. We're looking at the highest that we can justify as being the case. And of course, we know the different plant and equipment items that the individual might not necessarily know. And accountants aren't qualified to estimate construction costs. So unless you have an invoice for that asset, the accountant can't really do it. Uh, the biggest thing is that people actually don't get it done. So amongst our clients, we analysed a, a sample of 1,000-plus uh, residential schedules that we did, and 6.7% of those had missed out on deductions, and that's even allowing for the fact that you've got a two-year back claim. So the average amount that people were missing out was three and a half years' worth of deductions, and that was just over $20,000 worth of missed deductions for those clients. So... 6.7% doesn't sound like a lot, but that's 6.7% of people who eventually got there, who understood they needed a depreciation schedule and they came to us. So there's a lot of people out there that just have no idea. So we can only really measure what comes through our doors and what we can see. And given the investor population, if you take that average of 20,000 of missed deductions and extrapolate that across the whole property investor cohort, yep. this was my little sort of like clickbait article, <laughs> it's $2.88 billion worth of missed deductions. So it's it's big wow. numbers. It's pretty significant. Yeah. And that's, that's claims, that's tax deductions yep. that individuals are missing out on, um, yep. which they are in, completely entitled to claim uh, on their tax return. Yeah, absolutely. And so it's a deduction rather than what they get back in their pocket. Right. But if it's $20,000 deduction, it could be seven or $8,000 out of their pocket. Mm -hmm. So there's 
over 100,000 people, for example, if we follow those numbers that are missing out on that seven or $8,000. And sometimes that can just be because the person doesn't necessarily understand that, uh, yeah. that they're eligible for this. Yeah, they can just purely not understand that they've got that as an entitlement. Mm -hmm. uh, if they're working with a quality buyer's agent, for example, they should be introducing the concept. And I know that Henderson's definitely does. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's sometimes where property investors are told by somebody that there's no value in getting a depreciation schedule done for their particular property. Sometimes they're correct, but often, even with accountants telling potentially uh, investors that there's no value in a schedule, they still sometimes sort of guiltily call us and say, I'm probably not supposed to talk to you because my accountant yeah. said it's not really worthwhile, but I listened to a podcast or I read something that you put on social media, can you have a look? And then if we find something, then we send a copy of the report to the accountant. And sometimes I just feel like saying, you know, stop giving them dodgy advice because, mm. you know, we got them two or three grand back. And that, that can be incredibly valuable um, for, you know, what most investors are, are mum and dad investors that, that are really worried, well, not worried, but conscious of those dollars that they could have in their back pocket. Yeah, well, the latest ATO stats say that 60% of property investors are negatively geared, right? So that means that the property is costing them money to hold on to each year, each week, whatever. Depreciation can often bridge that gap from negatively geared to neutrally geared, or at least soften some of that cash flow issue that negatively geared portfolios can have. So, I mean, I sell the stuff, <laughs> so I'm biased. <laughs> I think it's great. But I mean, by that token as well, I mean, I, I often I'll say to people, I don't care whether you use use me and my business um, or not, you just need to use somebody because unless you want to give this bonus to the Australian government, most yeah. people don't. Most people, you know, Kerry Packer famously said that the government's not really spending it that well. Um, yeah, then you really need to use somebody to access those deductions. Yeah, for sure. And, and while we're on that topic of, of the business itself, mm. Take us right back to, um, I guess, the origins of the business and, and what, um, what were the steps or the, um, the things that, that tended to happen for you um, for, for you to, to build um, MCG uh, Quantity Surveyors, you know, right back in 2011? Yeah, well done. 2011, you're right. <laughs> so we registered the business in 2011 and my business partner Marty and I sort of had um, other full-time jobs while we were working behind the scenes. So um, I had a contract job working for, this is niche, an Italian rail signalling company. That is very niche. It's very <laughs> niche. You don't you don't hear about that a lot. You don't hear about quantity surveyors a lot, but Italian rail signalling is, is pretty <laughs> niche. The, the parent company builds helicopters, so I wish I got to play with that stuff, but mm. no. Uh, so I was doing a, a project controller role there, and I did that for about a year um, and worked after hours, weekends, doing the tax depreciation stuff. Really spent a lot of time building the system so we would be ready to launch. Uh, then we got to the point where after about a year, there was about enough money for me to jump in there and pay my salary or at least survive. Uh, and then so I built the business up um, a little bit more hands-on. My business partner, Marty, he was doing that project. Uh, he had a project management role in the same company 
for two years. So I, I worked in the business for a year and I said, right, Marty, I think we've nearly got enough money for you to come in. And, you know, of course, when he fo- focused all of his energy, he was able to grow it as well. So when we started, we were just working from a home office. Mm-hmm. Our first employee was thankfully a maid of mine. So she came and worked from the front bedroom of my house. As and then was the reception or the, the front of office? No, like because... The, the good thing about the business that we started is that people didn't sort of come to you saying, oh, I want to get a tax depreciation sheet. And I said, oh, well, step in, madam, and we'll you know show you all the brochures and stuff. It didn't really matter. And if we needed to meet a client or accountant or refer or anybody, we'd say, oh, yeah, what's your favourite coffee shop? Or we'll come to you. Um, so we didn't really need a presence. But when we got the next employee, they were a total stranger. And I didn't necessarily want the front bedroom to sort of get jammed up with people. And I didn't know this person. I thought, oh, this is a little bit weird. Um, So then we got our first office, which was actually next door to where we are now. Um, So we had a smaller space there and we sort of leap leap frog over there, over to here. And yes, since we started there, we've, we've, we've grown pretty, pretty quickly. And that's been a lot of fun. And that all uh, culminated in 2018 when you were... um Part of the the AFR or or what I think it was the BER um, BRW BRW, used to be yeah yeah Um, the the fast the fastest growing companies in Australia yes so tell me a little bit about I guess the journey to to getting to to being one of the fastest growing companies in Australia yeah well the first thing was okay well um, we were lamenting the fact that if we had have held off registering our business name we would have made the fast starters list so there's a fast 100 and then there's the fast 50 startup companies but because we sort of registered and did nothing for a little while we, we missed that and we're like oh that's that's crap but <laughs> we'll go after the fast 100 so the first hurdle I guess was you lo- when we I, I'm sure that the the numbers change each year for the entry requirements but your the first submission year you need to submit four years of financial data so you turn over for four years in a row if you're publicly listed then it's easy if you're private your accountant has to certify it and you have to send it all in so it's a real drop your trousers sort of thing rather than a popularity like winning this you know Australia's best thing and it's a panel of judges so I really liked that so the first hurdle was we had to turn over half a million bucks so obviously the first couple of years in business we weren't at that point so then when we got there we were needing to of course grow at a certain percentage each financial year and of course me being a numbers guy I looked at the last nine years and figured out what the lowest percentage growth we could reach to get on it each year. And it ranged between about 34 and 49%, something like that. So um, in fairness, we didn't sort of at that half mil point and getting past that think, all right, well, this is the plan. But sort of halfway through, we realised oh, like, you only really need to get, you know, 30 or 40%. I make it sound easy. I was going to say, 30 <laughs> or 40% growth year on years, you know, it quickly uh, turns into an incredibly big business. Yeah. Well, we, yeah, we realised that um, we, we were actually on track, like we should have been able to do it. So then really the last full financial year, I think we did like a, we did a, what did we do? I think we did a 76 
percent growth for the first year. Then we wow. did a twenty something, and we were like the wheels fell off. We were terrified; <laughs> it was a disaster. And for the last one, we were aiming for fifty. Um, so in that financial year, we said to the staff, "This is what we want to do." All of the goals and KPIs sort of came down from that. So that was a real great unifying thing. And we said, "We want to do it because we are, at the end of the day, and still." A small business, you know, punching it out against big competitors, and on that fast 100 list, there's massive competitors, you know, hundreds of millions of turnover, and we thought, like, wouldn't it be great if if us as a bunch of sort of idiots in Charlestown could get on that list? And I said, you know, for you guys, it's just going to be fun. Let's 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 get stuck in. Let's have a crack. Let's you know celebrate at the end of the day. We'll have a big party. It'll always look good on your resume, whether you're here or not. And let's just, yeah, swing for the fence. So we hit 50% growth on that. And I think across that, um, the, the three rolling years, we, we hit, it was either 41 or 42% year on year growth. And that got us in 91st position on that list of 100. And we didn't care. We just didn't want to be 101st. Yep. We yep. knew we weren't going to be up the pointy end. But I, th- I, I don't think there were any other Newcastle companies on there. And I don't think there's ever been a quantity surveyor on there. So we were just, we were wrapped. Yeah, Mike, that's a that's a very big feat, and you know, congratulations for Thank that, mate. You. I, I can see I'm looking at uh, the wall over the other side of the office, and mm. it's uh, there's a big banner over there, you know, reminding all of the staff that, that you did make it back in 2018. So, in, in speaking about your staff, and and it sounds like uh, you've built a business that's become a little bit like a, a bit of a family, or yeah. you know, you, you have. Um, a bit of a, a group or community mentality about you know achieving a, a group goal and that kind of thing so what's what's it been like uh you know acquiring talent and, and holding on to to the right types of people throughout um you know that that growth phase and still obviously growing today has has there been you know those guys that or any times that um you know you've really felt comfort in knowing that the team you've got behind you is is really banding together and yeah and moving towards that common goal I definitely felt that in 2018 as we were going for that target. And to be honest, if I'm critiquing myself and, and, and even Marty as directors of the business, our focus then was was razor sharp because we had something that we were going after. The challenge perpetually is how do you have that year on year? So, yeah, we were very focused. We had a good team there, but I actually feel like right now we've got the best team that we've ever, ever had. And we can see that with some of the metrics and the data that we collect. And I mentioned it before, I'm a data nerd, so we collect all sorts of stuff and we're, you know, we're, we're getting pretty innovative with that sort of stuff. So, yeah, look... Um, Finding the right people and the right fit, I think we're, you know, we're still learning on that and how to really talk about what makes us different. And I think you're right. We do like to have fun. I mean, it's a bit like you think about yourself, you know, being an employee, what would be the sort of business that you would create if someone said, you know, here's 10 million bucks, go and create a business. Like, what would you want it to be like? We've, Marty and I both have had bosses that we admired and respected others that we thought were terrible. So we kind of tried to, you know, cafeteria pick the ones that we liked, you know, get rid of the stuff that we hated. We both worked in organisations that were too loose and didn't have a plan or a structure, other that were real big brother controlling sort of like cultish mentality. So we're just like, well, 
we, we're very serious about the business and the client experience and the growth and that sort of stuff, but we can have fun. We want to be ourselves and, our, and have personalities. And we really just kind of say to the guys, like, this is your job, this is your role, you know, own it, you know, smash it out of the park. And how you do that is really up to you. So we try and give a bit of flexibility and, and freedom. And the right people appreciate that. And I think, I don't mean to pick on millennials because that happens a lot. But That's all right. We get it from every angle. <laughs> I think actually I'm like one year off being a millennial according to some blog that I looked at. It just seems incredible. Um, the thing is that people that have worked somewhere else before appreciate working here more than people that it's their first gig. So we've definitely learnt that it's probably better to, to hire people with a little bit more experience who know how the world works. Um, yeah, millennials have def- really great attributes and that sort of stuff, but, yeah, we're, we're valuing sort of the experience and people that have had a bit of a breadth of, of exposure to different industries and that sort of thing. Yeah, for sure. Did I answer the question? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> So we're obviously, you know, we're sitting in, in Charlestown, in, in, which is part of, of Greater Newcastle, and, yeah. you know, we've got Sydney two hours down the road. I'm sure that there were some personal factors, you know, in, uh, I guess, your decision to, to set up shop and, and continue to work um, from your head office here in, in Newcastle. But has there been any other drivers or, or benefits that you've seen across the, the last, say, nine, ten years of um, of the business from having a presence in Newcastle? Look, not f- necessarily from a direct business point of view. I mean, most of our business is not in Newcastle. So, I mean, to, to clarify that, our business people and our back of house, our, our processing, uh, you know, Charlestown, Newcastle is our, is our base, but the majority of our work is, is, is in Sydney, um, and probably New South Wales first, but mostly Sydney. But we do more in Melbourne and Brisbane individually than we do in Newcastle. Really, the reason why we started the business is, new, is in Newcastle is as simple as it's where Marty and I lived, right? So I was living in Waratah, he was living in Thornton. Uh, and we're like, all right, we need an office space. Well, we, w- we weren't going to go looking in Chatswood, right? Yeah, of course. But the unintended consequences are that... Um, the staff that we have here are, are paid less than they would be in Sydney. That's the same for everybody uh, because of the living expenses there, right? You need more money to, to live in Sydney than you do in Newcastle. So, so that enables us to be a little bit more economical. It enables us to, to pay a little bit higher than Newcastle in general because we're exposed to those businesses. And Newcastle is pretty good because the airport, you can go direct to most of the places that we do. Uh, we do work in Adelaide and, and, and Perth, but when I'm travelling, it's normally Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne, uh, and that's very, very easy to get to from here. Uh, so being, being in Newcastle and working in those areas has meant that I've had to travel a lot and, you know, family makes sacrifices and triathlon careers make sacrifices. Um, but, you know, COVID has definitely given me a bit of a, a rest on the travel stuff. Uh, but, yeah, Newcastle, it's a great place to live. I mean, it's the best place that I've ever lived. Uh, and, yeah, it, it's just 
I think it's you know, it's got all the benefits of a city. It's a big regional town. Um, you can get Ethiopian cuisine if you want. Yep, <laughs> like you yep. can get almost anything that you want. Um, but, you know, the house prices are better. The traffic's mm. better. There's, you know... I don't need to tell you. You live here as well, right? <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's my pick of the um, the town. Of course, I grew up in Nelson Bay and, and right. migrated down to Newcastle. But you know, I've been I've spent a good part of my you know professional life in Sydney, mm-hmm. and um, just the comparison between, I guess, the work life balance and also you know the the time you get in your back because of say the the shorter commutes and yeah. um, you know your your money gets you much further in real estate and all that kind of stuff. It's, yeah. It definitely, uh, I guess, tantalises the the millennial um, who's who's looking to get a bit more bang for buck. Yeah. So, Mike, you did mention uh, triathlon. Mm. Um, we were talking off air beforehand. Um, I'm an avid triathlete enthusiast myself, and um, I did read somewhere on your website that uh, you you might have represented Australia at some yeah. point. Yeah. You still still training? Still handy yourself? Oh, I'm I'm trying. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so I, um, I was overweight many years ago and there was a guy whose wife worked at the same place as me and at a Christmas party I knew he'd done the Spark Helmore Triathlon here in Newcastle and I sort of said to him, oh, how do you do that? You know, growing up I was always fit and healthy. I was a good runner. Um, my dad and um, a lot of family members were sort of very handy cyclists. Um, as a kid, you know, I did a little bit of swim squad and that sort of stuff. But, yeah, I got pretty um, overweight. So I was chatting to this guy saying, how does it work? You know, how do you do this triathlon malarkey? So I ended up doing Spark Hillmore and I think I came like 270th and then I came the next year like 130th and then the following one I came second and then I was like okay well this is like a thing like I really enjoy it now that was back when there was an elite one and then there was more of like a weekend warrior one so I didn't come second in all of the you know there's a few sort of pros around here but yeah I thought like that's pretty cool and you know nothing spurs you on like being successful at something Mm -hmm. so then I just got a little bit silly with it got into the you know the half Ironman distance because you know I just I like the long slow pain like I love (laughs) Suffering, probably not something. Yeah, most people probably wouldn't. But no, I love it. It's a weird thing to say on camera, perhaps, and (laughs) and on a podcast. But no, I really enjoyed it. And so, yeah, the half Ironman stuff I liked. And then, you know, I spent many, many um, a night watching the Hawaii Ironman and all of the inspirational stories about the people that do that. So I thought I got to have a crack. For the benefit of uh, everyone listening at home or, or watching at home. Would you run us through the the distances of both a half and and the full Ironman triathlons? Yeah, so a half is exactly half of a full Ironman. So a full Ironman is a 3.8K swim, a 180K bike and a marathon, which is 42Ks. So if you halve that, yeah, all on that on one day. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so a half is 1.9, 90 and 21. So a half marathon. Yeah. So you did the the half Ironman. Uh, Did you you ever get around to, to doing the full Ironman? Yes, I did. Um, I did. I think I did two or three halves in Port, and I've since done like the Melbourne um, Challenge half and that sort of stuff. But yeah, I did the, I did the Port Ironman. I can't remember what year it is. I think it was twenty eleven, something like that. 
Um, and yeah, I like I, I suffered hard. I suffered more than I enjoy suffering. Really, I had a I had a lower back issue, so that was really difficult. Like sighting the boys, it was just killing me. Um, I was underdone. In all honesty, I didn't put enough training into it, and you know you that you really get found out on race day in an Ironman. And yeah, the bike. I ended up pulling over a few times, um, you know, to stretch the back. And I think I biked about an hour and a half. Slow lower than I intended so after I sort of had my little sook and thought oh this is crap you know I wanted to do better than that I I sort of embraced it got off the bike started feeling a bit better in the run and just thought like this is cool I I, I really wanted to finish an Ironman and yeah it wasn't going to be the best time but it was like you know you join that elite club of one percent of people or is it one percent of one percent someone there's a stat out there somewhere so yeah i really enjoyed it and then after that uh i was uh yeah really started the business um got married and decided that um the long distance training like my longest bike ride in training was like six hours and 45 minutes like that wrecks a saturday and the fitter i got the longer the lawn grew (laughs) So you could always tell how fit I was because if the lawn was neck height, you know, I was I was Rip Van Winkle. Um, so I just didn't really have the time, and and yeah. um, my immune system was was getting absolutely shagged by um, the training. training. Yeah. Yeah. So I switched to the Olympic distance, and I sort of saw um, a couple of guys locally making the national team and racing in the green and cold as amateurs. And I thought, oh, that would be a dream, like to race for Australia. The um, the Olympic distance, that's quite competitive too, isn't it? Yeah. So yeah, that's uh, that would be an incredible feat if uh, you you ended up managing to, to put the green and gold on. It's a it's a <laughs> bit of a long story. How long have we got? We've got a few minutes, right? <laughs> Absolutely. So I I raced all around the country trying to chase points. So they took. 20 people in my age group which i think was 30 to 34 age group then um so you had to race in the national series and the um, australian championships was double points so that was in devonport so i went to tassie and did that it was like four meter swell and it was just hairy i was freezing cold waiting for the start in a wetsuit so that was good fun that was the first one. I went to uh, Canberra, went on a bit of a road trip, took my mum, mm-hmm. raced down in Canberra, swam in Burley Griffin. That was gross. The swim had to be moved because of an algal bloom. So I thought, oh, this is crap. Like, who, who wants to do triathlon? Uh, got a few points there. Went to Mandura in Perth, thinking, like, the competition won't be real fierce there and I'll sneak a few points. Mm-hmm. The competition was absolutely incredible. And me being silly, trying to be a little bit faster, I decided I'd take one water bottle rather than the two. And it was about a 44 degree day on the bike. And I got chewed up and spat out, (laughs) went home with my tail between my legs after walking the entire run. So no points. The wife was very understanding of me spending what was probably a couple of grand to go and do a race for points and coming home with nothing. (laughs) She even picked me up from Sydney Airport. Um, And then I was... So you could take, I I picked four races and you could take three races of the points, your best three races. So I only had two races. um, So it all depended on Wollongong. 
So I was gearing up to race in Wollongong and I think it was about the Tuesday before the race that weekend, I went out for a ride uh, and I was going down the hill near Newcastle Uni and my little Garmin shows 59 kilometres an hour and then zero because a car came out and I whacked into the side of it and flew over the bonnet, did a few flips, hit my head, broke the helmet, you know, bark off everywhere. And that was, that was intense. First thing I said to the wife was, um, you know, after the ambulance came and all that sort of stuff was like, I'm definitely racing <laughs> this weekend. <laughs> and I was on a walking stick for a good couple of months. Like I couldn't do anything. I, I, thankfully, like if you change a couple of variables, like I probably think like six out of ten times that should have really like done me over. Yeah. But I was lucky that I did get back and thankfully – even without doing that Wollongong race, I qualified with enough points to be 19th of the 20 people that they wanted to take to the Worlds. That was a really long story, for, which but I apologise. We got there. So you got to put, you got to put the, uh, the green and gold on. By yeah, the I raced for Australia in London. Um, I did the Aquathon as well because they were short of people. I thought, why not? I'm here. You know, I'll yeah, have a bash. Yeah, and yeah, it was it was on the Olympics course from two years earlier. So I must have been there 2012, and they raced the Olympics um, there in 20, uh, 2010. And so yeah, rode past Buckingham Palace and down the embankment and past Big Ben. It's very difficult to sight see when you're in like a time trial position. Yeah, well, yeah. I did a little bit, and that was that was great. And I got a PB, and yeah, good fun. I mean, it's it's no Spark Hellmore triathlon though, is it? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Riding up and down uh, the waterfront at, at Newcastle. So, Mike, I know you know you've got a very busy afternoon ahead of you. I don't want to uh, to hold you you too much longer. But, mate, of course, we wanted to bring it back to to Newcastle, where it all began for you. Yep. What uh, you know, if there was one thing that you had to um, to highlight about Newcastle, either personally or or um, you know. Through through your endeavours at work, yeah. What would be that thing that um, that you just, you know, you you probably sometimes you might take it for granted, uh, but every now and then you realise that gee, you've you know we've got a pretty good where we are. Yeah. Here in Newcastle. Look, I I think we're absolutely blessed. I mean, statistically, to be able to grow up in a in a place like this and to live in a place like this is it's very unusual, right? And we don't get to choose where we're born. You know, I could have been born in Syria. Thank heavens, I was born in Penrith. <laughs> Doesn't sound like a consolation prize. Yeah, yeah, Penrith is better than Syria, but this Newcastle is better than Penrith. Um, so yeah, look, I think we're really lucky where we are. It's a beautiful part of the world. You know, having access to a lake and an ocean side by side is just mind blowing for a kid that grew up around Wagga and Griffith where you don't get any of that sort of stuff. And yeah, Newcastle is big enough to be able to get anything you want. Ethiopian. It's a bit of a plug. I can't remember there, is it? I've been <laughs> to that place. It's on uh, King Street, I think. Habisa uh, or something like that? Yeah, something like That's that. That's the one? Yeah, right. Very good food there. Yep, so we've given them a plug. So, I mean, my point is you can get really anything that you want in Newcastle. The airport gives you a link to everywhere and you don't have the traffic and the house prices and... Novocastrians are very proud people, I think, and I can't really call myself one because I'm a blow-in. Like, I wasn't here until I was 16, so a lot of people would say, you're not Novocastrian. Oh, I don't know. You've, you've done your time. I think uh, 
you know, you've, you've obviously spent a bit of time on the lake and realised, um, you know, just what gold we've got mm. uh, there. And, and it'd be, what, 10 or 15 minutes and on the other side and you've got, um, you know, world-class waves at, at Redhead and, and the beaches there. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, look, Mike, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. We really, really appreciate it. Pleasure. Um, before we do go, if, uh, if we've got any investors that are listening and they're interested in uh, finding out a little bit more about a tax depreciation schedule, yep. uh, how can they go about finding you guys? Yeah, you can uh, find us on all the social media channels, not TikTok. We're not there yet. <laughs> uh, and the website's the easiest way to go. It's just mcgqs for quantitysurveyors.com.au. And, uh, yeah, I'm a pretty easy person to Google. So, yeah, happy to help out. Awesome, Mike. Thanks very much. Cheers. Thanks for having me.